Amen. As you're being seated, find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, how many of you would say you always, always drive the speed limit or lower? I'm not seeing any hands. I'm seeing a couple of head scratches. Um, how many of you would say every once in a while you might go over at the speed limit? How about every single time you get in the vehicle? <laughs> There's some hands up. Son, put your hand up. <laughs> You're about to lose your privileges. All right, so we will admit in here that sometimes we might drive a little fast. All right, so here's another question. How many of us believe on our vehicles that the brakes work? So, our belief in our brakes dictates our behavior and how fast we might drive, correct? If you didn't really trust your brakes, you might not be pushing the speed limit, right? But we know if we're going 70, 75, 77, whatever we're going, we know that once we start tapping that brake, what's going to happen? Lord willing, we're going to start slowing down, right? And so our belief in the brakes dictates our behavior and how fast or how too fast we sometimes drive. And I want to make this point by way of introduction that belief influences, and I would even say dictates, our behavior. Like, for example, if you really believe that church is important, guess what? You will be in a, as a part of the church, right? I mean, we might miss for sickness or rare occasions but, or different things going on in life, but for the most part, if you believe that the church is God's people and he's called us to be a part of the church, guess what's going to happen on the majority of the time? We're going to meet together with the church, right? If you really believe that God hears and answers prayer, if that's one of your beliefs, that when I pray, God hears me, then you should be a person who prays, right? If the God of the universe hears, I should be praying to him. If you believe the word of God is powerful and helps you know about salvation and life, should you not read the word of God? Yes, our belief dictates and drives our behavior. And I want you to see that in 1 Thessalonians and really in most of Paul's letters, he gives this pattern of teaching where it begins with, here are the things you need to believe, and then based on that doctrine, here are the things you need to do. Here's some examples. In the book of Romans, we studied a couple years ago, Romans chapters 1 through 11 are heavily theological heavy doctrine about salvation, grace, things like that. But beginning in um, Romans 12 through the last few chapters, he shifts from doctrine to duty. From here's what you need to believe and here's what you need to do with the belief. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, heavy on doctrine. Here's the things you need to believe. Here's the teaching. And then Ephesians 4 through 6, here's how you need to apply that. And so we're going to see really the same type of thing in 1 Thessalonians. The first three chapters we've studied have really been focused on here are the main things you need to believe. Paul's looked back to when he first went to Thessalonica, preached the gospel, they became believers, and they began to go through afflictions. Now where we are in the middle of this letter, um, he is shifting. He is shifting. As you see the first word of chapter 4, verse 1, it might say the word finally or furthermore uh, in your scripture there. He is shifting to this exhortation of practice, things you need to do. He's saying beginning today to these people and to us, here is the conduct you need as believers, or at least some of the conduct you need. 
Let's read it. We'll read 1 through 12 um, this morning. As we think about how belief dictates behavior. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received us, received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, I practiced that word ten times and still butchered it. How many of you have ever used the word concupiscence in your life? I just butchered it again. All right. Verse 5. Not in lust, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not God, but not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, and that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you walk honestly toward them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. I want to break down these 12 verses with two main points. The first thing I want us to see is a general call to a God-pleasing walk. Paul makes this general plea, uh, beseeching, urging them to please God with their, not just their beliefs, but to please God with their, with their walk. The first thing I want you to notice is the word beseech. Beseech in verse 4, also the word exhort. So to urge, to urge, to encourage, to challenge. Um, this word literally means to to come alongside and help. Um, I, I, I thought about how I could illustrate that, and a while back we took our girls to a skating, roller skating party, and right when they're really little, many of you have done this with your children, they can't really skate yet, right? So you have to hold their hands, and sometimes you might even pick them up off the ground, you lay them down. They might fall, you pick them back up, but you try to hold on as much as you can, right? Because they're learning. And so when he says here, I urge you, I beseech you, he's really saying, I'm coming alongside you in my teaching, and helping you. I'm holding your hand. I'm giving you guidance. I'm helping you kind of get off your feet because these are young believers. I come beside you. Another example of the way this word is also used in, in the first century is the word exhort is used to encourage troops who are about to go into battle. Imagine a, a troop leader and he's like, hey guys, we're about to go into battle. We're about to fight this fight, fight this war. And he's, he's pumping them up, right, to go and do their, their fighting. And so if we take those two words, the words urge or beseech and exhort or encourage. We see that Paul is saying to the believers and he's saying to us, I'm coming alongside you with my words by sending Timothy. I'm coming alongside you in truth and doctrine and I'm encouraging you to be ready for the battle you are in. And to not give up and not quit, 
but to be aware there is a battle and to fight that battle. And we've seen it in the first three chapters, haven't we? They're going through affliction. They live in a heavily pagan city. All around them are people who hate the Christianity they are now upholding or holding to. And he says, I'm urging you, I'm beseeching you, and I'm exhorting you to remember this. Well, remember what? Keep looking. Verse 1. That as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would do more and more. I'm coming alongside you, I'm encouraging you, I'm challenging you to know how to walk like a Christian. Now, how does a Christian walk? One foot in front of the other? Is there a special walk Christians have? Of course not, right? He's using this walk, he's using scripture often as a metaphor for how we live, right? We walk justly with our God, the Old Testament says. And so, walk is a metaphor, it means how we ought to live. So, my question, church, this morning is, as we think about a general call to a God-pleasing life or God-pleasing walk is, what does a God-pleasing life look like? I mean, do we want to live a life that pleases God? I hope the answer is yes. And then what does that life look like? I jotted down a few thoughts here. It is a life of faith that trusts God even when things aren't going well. A God-pleasing life is a life that trusts God. A second thing is, it's a life of love. A life of love, loving God first and also loving others. Can we please God without loving Him and loving others? It'd be hard to keep some of those commandments in the, in the Scripture, wouldn't it, if we're not loving God and loving other people? How about obedience? How important is it for us to please God to walk lives of faithful, loving obedience? It's important. How about servanthood? Serving others. How about being invested in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations? How about fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. How about being a person who gives of yourself to others? How about the basic three we always talk about? A person of prayer, of the Word, and of church. As someone mentioned this morning in our Sunday school class, just treating people the right way. A God-pleasing walk includes all these things I just mentioned and whatever else the scripture tells us to do. And I would add to that, it's a progression. It is a walk. It's not a God-pleasing standstill, right? It's a God-pleasing walk. It is a progression, a journey we are on, a life we're living that seeks to please God in what we do. Look at verse 2. For you know... What commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So he's referring here back to commandments he had given them. Probably when he was there preaching the gospel in that short time period, he taught them some things. And looking at kind of, I was just curious, like what, what would have been the main things that Paul taught churches? We know we have in, in writing in the scripture, right? And I imagine it's the very same thing he, he gives us in scripture. But to summarize it, I, I thought three things. First, he certainly told them the gospel, didn't he? He preached Christ and Christ crucified in the cross, right? He, he, it's Christ, it's the cross, the resurrection, the gospel story. And he preached that gospel, and I'm sure he as, he, as time allowed, I'm sure he broke that gospel down to them. The second thing is, I think he probably just reminded them, based on what we see in Scripture, reminded them of who Christ was and what Christ did. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. 
reminding them that Christ is man, Christ is God, Christ is Son of God, Christ is Lord, Christ is Savior, and then the deeds. And the third thing is, clearly he taught them, based on that gospel, based on who Christ is and what Christ did, he taught them how they must live. Listen to what he said to the church uh, in Colossae, in Colossians 2. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so you ought to live in him, or walk in him. And so it's this reminder, and as we go back to our introduction this morning, that doctrine precedes and leads to duty. That precept, as someone once said, leads to practice, or that belief dictates behavior. How about 1 John 2, 6? It says, the one who, ab- who says he abides in Christ ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so I look at verse 1 and 2 of this text, that you know what commandments I've taught you, Paul says, and that you walk in those commandments. And I wonder how many people today say, I abide in Christ, but their walk doesn't match their talk. And that's not a good thing, is it? For us too, right? Sometimes that happens to us. And we're like, man, there's an area of my life, and maybe it just doesn't match up with my Christian belief. Well, I need to pray about that area, repent of sin, and ask God to put me back on the right path. Because we've, I think we've agreed, I hope we've agreed this morning, we desire to live God-pleasing lives. Someone said that our walk with Christ is not a sprint. It is a steady, two-step practice. And this writer said, here are the two steps. Every day, put off the old man and put on the new man. Every day. What did Paul say? I die daily. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. Every day saying, I wake up today, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. Lord, help me walk this life in a way that's pure and holy and honorable. And as we all know, that can certainly be a battle. But by faith and through obedience and with the help of the Spirit of God, we can walk a God-pleasing walk. There's an old song that says, Oh, for a closer walk with God a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from the throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame, so pure light shall mark the road that leads me to the Lamb. I hope we can see in these two verses this call and I hope, you're, I hope you're really thinking about it. How does this affect me? Is my life as God-pleasing as I want it to be? And then he gives us, in verses 3 and following, two specific aspects of a God-pleasing walk. Specific aspects of a God-pleasing walk. First, let's break down the first half of verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. Then he says, even your sanctification. I want to break this verse down. Um, First, he talks about the the will of God. You can go back, Kendall. The will of God. Um, My favorite verse on the will of God, and if you don't know this, jot this down, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, 
that we may do all the words of this law. And to me in that verse, I see kind of the complexity of God's will, that there's a secret sovereign will of everything God has determined, basically. And then there's a revealed will, which is what we have to follow and to obey. And I think about scriptures, I I looked up some scriptures that talk about the will of God as far as what we should obey and how we should live a God-pleasing walk. And Romans 12, 1 jumped off the page. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Another verse is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And so when it comes to the sovereign will of God for our lives, and as far as what's going to happen tomorrow, we don't know that, do we? We, don't, we just trust him that his will be done, right? Father, your will be done. We trust him for that. But when it comes to the revealed will of God, his word, verse 3, this is the will of God. It says this, even your sanctification. What a great word to study for the Christian. After we've studied the gospel and justification, regeneration, those things, the word sanctification is a great word. It, it, I, my favorite definition of to be sanctified means to be less and less like the world and to be more and more like Christ. As we're Christians walking through this walk, we're becoming less like the world, hopefully, and also hopefully more like Christ. One of my favorite books of all time, I would recommend it to anybody, is called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And he said this about sanctification. He said, we must be heavenly minded and have heavenly tastes in the life that now is, or else we shall never find ourselves in heaven in the life to come. That, that, that would be kind of silly, right? If you go through this whole life not caring about God, not caring about the things of God, not caring about heaven, why would you expect to spend eternity in heaven with God? You wouldn't, right? Raul says, how are your tastes right now? You desire godly things, spiritual things, things of God now. And so we can say that to be sanctified is a Christ-centered, spirit-led transforming of a believer who increases in heavenly tastes. Paul said it better in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And then Jesus spoke about this sanctification You've already heard it once in the service this morning when Jesus prayed and said about his disciples. He said, Father, sanctify them in truth. What did he say? Your word is truth. A big part of becoming less like the world and more like Jesus is to make the word a daily part of your life. And to make how you intake it a part of your life. I wanted to read the whole chapter, but I'm just not going to do it for time's sake. But jot down Nehemiah 8. And go back and look at that this week or this afternoon. The, the, short, or the summary of Nehemiah 8 is these people are 
about to go hear the word. And the gist of it is, they get out there, they're crowded around to hear the word. And they want to hear the word. And the way I read it, it says they stood around for hours, hours upon hours, to hear the word. And as the word was being read, it wasn't even like a, re- a sermon. It wasn't, there was no like funny jokes or illustrations. It seems like they're just reading through the word. People are standing and listening and watching and people are saying, amen, I agree with that, praise the Lord, and, and things like that. They're, they're engaged in the reading of the word for hours. And then they start asking some of the leaders, we want to know more about that word. Can y'all come out and tell us more about the explain it to us. Do some expository teaching on that word. They start talking about it. Nehemiah 8 is a great chapter of contrasting their desire for the word with our lack of desire for the word. How many of you have ever opened up your Bible and start reading and five minutes later you're asleep or you're bored? How many of us have ever sat in the sermon and thought, I'm ready to get, ready to get out of here, and you're like 20 minutes into the sermon? I've done it. How many of us have been to church before and you're like, my preacher better get out by 12? I've heard some churches put a clock back there to make sure he sees it, <laughs> make sure he knows. I've known people before, the true story, who it didn't matter what, he, what part of the service you're in, when it was 12, this man would get up and leave. He's leaving at 12 regardless. Isn't that wild? That's wild to me. What would that man have done in Nehemiah chapter 8 when all of God's people around trying to hear the word? Would he have walked out? He probably wouldn't have been there in the first place, but... My, my point of contrast in that is not to make us feel guilty, but just to think, think about the fact that if we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to have a God-pleasing walk, it's not going to happen if we're indifferent to the teaching and preaching of the Word, is it? And the reading of it. As a matter of fact, this could actually spark revival in our hearts and in our homes and in our church with a small group like we have. It could spark revival if we had a renewed desire for God's Word. And I'm talking to people who I think, for the most part, do have a desire for God's Word. But what if we even more so? What if I walk out today and somebody says, man, we should have had a second sermon, or we should have preached a little bit longer. Nobody's ever said that to me before. But, but and not because of my preaching, but just because we, we want the Word. Hey, I'll be honest, some days I go home, And I sit on my couch and watch football some Sundays. But there's been some Sundays where something's happened in the service, maybe something Jason said or one of you said or the sermon, and I go home and i got to flip my Bible open and, man, i got to get back in here and see something, right? Now, I need more of that and less of the watching the football game, right? I need more, I need a more passionate desire for God's Word. And I wonder if we take it that serious. I wonder if we take it serious enough. In 1 Peter, he wrote, Like newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the word. We got some babies in the church now, and when you all feed them those bottles, what happens when you pull the bottle out of their mouth? Leah, does she kind of keep her mouth going a little bit? Like, give me more. Are your feet, your spoon feeding now? 
They're reaching for the spoon. Give me more. Right? The, we desire the word of God that way. Give me more. Mm, that was good. I tasted it. It was good. Give me more. The process of sanctification, this process of a God-pleasing walk, a God-pleasing life, is dependent upon our intake of the word, but not just the intake. It's dependent upon the application of the word. Because I could sit here and preach and read something amazing out of the word, but if it goes in one ear and out the other, what good does it do? No good, right? I can talk to myself. I can bring Andrew in here and give him a lecture on something, right? But if he's not listening, it's not going to do any good, is it? He's still going to drive too fast, apparently. We need to intake it, and then we need to apply it. Over and over again, and of course, be dependent upon the Spirit of God helping us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said Romans 8.13, in his opinion, was the most important verse on sanctification. Romans 8.13, according to Lloyd-Jones, is, and he said, If you live by the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death deeds of the body, you will live. And he quotes Philippians 2, where Paul wrote, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so I want us to see, right? You're not going to be able to just muster up the strength, like, I'm really going to start reading my Bible more today. You're not going to be able to muster up that strength and be consistent unless you depend on God to help you do it and the Spirit of God to help you do it. Because we, we will be weak, and we will fall, and we will fail, and we will quit. But if we walk by the Spirit who is in us, who's come alongside us to urge us and exhort us and encourage us, He can help us persevere and not quit. Let me give you a quote on sanctification. The more holy a man is, the more humble, self-renouncing, self-abhorring, and the more sensitive to every sin he becomes, and the more closely he clings to Christ. I had a friend one time who didn't grow up in church, became a Christian as a, in college, Walked really close to God. Even to this day, I will put him on the list of my top five people that I would say is knows, knows and desires the word as much as anybody I know. And I remember when he first was coming to Christ or first walking with Christ, he would pray about everything. I mean, I would hear him pray like, Lord, I said this word, and it wasn't even that word I thought was that bad of a word. <laughs> but he, had, he was so excited to walk with Christ he was noticing every sin in his life and praying about it. I'm like, man, we ain't got time to pray about all these sins that you have. Like, but that's a good sign that he was sensitive to the sin in his life is a good sign that he's walking close with Christ. Because if I can just sin and ignore it and go on about my life, am I walking close with Christ? Am I grieving the Spirit instead of walking by the Spirit? This morning, we need to ask ourselves, are we becoming more holy? Are we desiring the things of God? Do we have heavenly tastes? And is that being evident in our lives? Two specific aspects of a God-pleasing walk related here in the text. In verse 3, he says, here's the will of God, your sanctification. But then he gives us a very specific, a very specific, or at least two very specific things about it. Verse 3 that you abstain from 
fornication. And every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, his body, in sanctification and in honor. And he goes on through verse 8, talking about sexual impurity. That's our next point. This is sanctification in the area of sexual purity. The word here, fornication or impurity, however you want to define that, denotes that every form of sexual practice outside of God's will and outside of uh, God's intent for marriage is a sin, right? And we, I, thought, I thought about this, going through John, there really wasn't a lot of teaching like this. Um, and so it's good that we've come here in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, that adultery is sin. Premarital and extramarital impurity is sin. Of course, the scripture clearly talks about things like homosexuality is sin. And any other perversion of God's design for uh, sexual things. And I, was, I found this so interesting, reading the context of Thessalonica. Because my first thought was, well, you know, it's really bad today. Look at all we see when it comes to the abuse of sexual things in our culture probably wasn't that bad back in Paul's day. How bad do you think it was in Paul's day? You go and start reading some stories, and you're like, whoa, whoa. You read stories like in the, some of these uh, Greek cities where these false, uh, I'll just mention Corinth, for example, where these false religions were there and had a thousand religious prostitutes, basically. And so when people would go to worship, those prostitutes would be a part of their worship. And this certainly infiltrated Thessalonica to some degree, where marriage was nothing. I read one quote, it said, In Thessalonica, women probably got married just to get divorced. Just speaking of how marriage was not held in honor, and how impurity and fornication was held in honor. So many stories like that, I won't read them all to you or quote them all to you today, but Paul is telling these believers, you've come out of your old life as unbelievers, now you're believers, and all that impurity around you, you cannot remain in that. If that was a part of your lifestyle, you must sever yourself from that lifestyle. I think that's what he's saying here. This is your new believers, verse 3. Listen to my words, your new believers... Here's God's will for you to be more like Christ and less like the world, to be sanctified. And one way you do that is through abstaining from fornication. You've got to, he says you've got to cut off this from your old life and live like this. And we know the teaching from Scripture on purity. But I will say... Um, even though some of these stories are wild from the first century, we also know we live in a time of fornication and impurity. And so we must always stand on the side of Scripture and understand that we believe and preach and live in a way that follows Scripture in these things. And if Scripture says some sexual thing is sin, then it is sin, and we call it that. 
Jerry Bridges says, it's, it's time for Christians to face up to our own responsibility for holiness. Too often, when it comes to sexual sins, we say, well, I'm just defeated by this or that. Bridges says, no, we're not defeated. We're simply disobedient. It might be well if we stop using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. Pretty strong language, but a good challenge for us to say, are we being obedient in this area and in every area? How can we stay pure in an impure world, quickly hiding God's word in our heart? Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan? He said, he, it is written, he quoted the scripture. Psalms tells us, Psalms 119, right? Hide God's word in your heart that you may not sin against him. Walking continually in the Spirit. Galatians is littered. Galatians 5 is littered with verses about walking in the Spirit. Making Spirit-initiated, Spirit-empowered choices. And if something were to pop in our eyesight or in our life that might cause us to be unfaithful to our spouse, for example, that we would run from that thing. We have a lot of married couples, right? That we would say, my spouse is my number one, right? I mean, God's my number one, my spouse. And my phone, when you call, it's been this way for 15 years. When she calls me or texts me, it says, don't say her name, it says number one. Which reminds me to always answer it if she calls. And so when I decline it, I feel terrible. But she's my number one, right? We need to hold fast to our number one, don't we? And don't let anything come in between that. We have so many different age groups of, of anniversaries in here, don't we? Jason and Casey celebrated 13 years. And there's some of y'all that, Brother Dale, how many? 50 years? 55 years? And other people all in between, right? Hold fast to your spouse. Hold fast to your number one. Don't let these things affect you. Jesus made it clear, didn't he? We talked about this, I know, on Wednesday night once, but Jesus made it clear, you don't even have to touch anybody to commit this kind of sin, do you? He said, if anyone looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already. Jesus was so serious about this type of stuff, he said over Matthew 5, if your right eye makes you sin, what should you do? Remove it? Which is him saying, I believe he's saying, be on the offensive against your sin. But my favorite illustration of this is in the Old Testament as far as fleeing sin. Can y'all think of who I'm talking about? Remember Joseph? When Potiphar's wife comes in to tempt him and no doubt, and undoubtedly, a, a beautiful woman who would come in to tempt him. And what does he do? <laughs> he runs out. Even leaving clothes behind, right? He's like, I'm getting out of here. He runs out. He flees, which is what we should do from, by the way, all sin. If we see it coming, it's in front of our face, it's close to us, it's, in our, it's about to come into our minds, flee from it. But then, listen to what he said. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? That's a huge thing there to realize 
We're not just sinning against other people, but do we want to sin against God? Do we want to sin against him or do we want to live a God-pleasing walk? Let me give you a, 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 it's called the weeding process. I think I have this here on the notes. First, how to deal with these things. Identify sins of the flesh. Identify sins. Galatians 5 helps us with that. Number two, call them sin and confess them. Don't just say, well, you know, everybody does this thing or, you know, whatever. It's fine. No, we're mature enough biblically to know if this is a sin, call it a sin and confess it to the Lord. Number three, stand firm in your position in Christ. We will never be able to overcome any sin we have apart from regular thinking of the gospel. Christ died for me. Christ saved me. Christ aims to take me to be with him forever. I ought to live a life that pleases him. I'm not perfect, right? But I'm progressing in my sanctification. Quickly move to sanctification in the area of love and work. In verses 9 through 12, he first talks about not only is your sanctification to be uh, sexually pure and to uh, break off from that old life you've been living but in the area of love and work, to have love for each other. And he says in these verses, in in verse 9, he says, you've actually been doing this, you've been loving. Verse 10, we've heard of your love, you've been loving other people, but continue in this. And I would argue, church, we all need to hear this this morning, I need to hear this, that we need to figure out more and more how to continue to love each other, especially in our church, but also in the world, just to love people, be kind to people, treat people with respect. I told you about my friend last week who... Um, had someone kind of pushing their biblical views down her throat, and she was asking me my thoughts on the questions, and um, then she said, oh, by the way, this lady treats everyone like garbage. And I said, oh, well, don't even listen to what she says. If If she actually treats everyone like garbage, she's disqualified herself from you caring about her thoughts on theology. And someone quoted this morning, People don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's a pretty good quote. So my point is, as he calls these people to live in love, may we live in love. May we treat people with kindness and respect. And then the last thing he says in verse 11 and 12, he says, work with your hands. Be quiet. I love that verse. Try to be quiet. Do your own business. Don't be in everybody else's business is basically what he's saying. Mind your own business. Work that you might walk honestly toward them that are without. Do the right things. That's how I summarize these verses. Do the right things. We, you do. People in this room do this. You go to work every day or you take care of things at home. You do what you're called to do by the Lord and in your family. And It's not easy, right? Some days are hard and some weeks are long, but we try to do the right things. And we do it so that we might Walk honestly toward them that are without. That we might please God and that we might even be an example to unbelievers of what a Christian should look like. Look at the last part of verse 12. That you may have lack of nothing. Just do the right things. Live the right way. Follow Christ in sanctification and God is there to provide. And he's, anything you're lacking, he will fill it up as according to his will. So, conclusion, 
Our belief dictates our behavior. My first question for you is this, and my last question. Are we believing in the gospel? If we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we believe that Christ died for our sins and that he really rose again, if we believe he really saved us by grace through faith, if we believe he, he commanded us to love him and love others, and he commanded us to make disciples of all nations, if we believe he commanded us to meet together regularly with the church and serve one another, if we also believe that he is one day coming to establish his eternal kingdom where we will live with him forever, if we really believe this gospel message, then we ought to aim every day to live a God-pleasing walk. Let's pray.